Welcome to the Fitness Canner Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Feigl. I'll be bringing you the truth about exercise by interviewing fitness professionals, exercise science professors and researchers, as well as fitness industry entrepreneurs and leaders. Hopefully you take this info and apply it to have a better, healthier, and happier lifestyle. Thanks and enjoy the show. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Fitness Candor Podcast, episode 55. I am joined today by Michael Petrella. He is the owner of STG Strength and Power, located in Bantford, Ontario, Canada. He's also the host of the uh, YouTube series called In the Gym, which now I believe is, is it its second season? I think uh, he'll be able to tell us a little bit more about that too. But uh, Michael, thanks for taking the time out on a Sunday to to talk a little strength and conditioning. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on today. Absolutely. So fill in some gaps for us about who you are, who you learn from, and uh, a little more of your philosophy. Okay. Well, uh, I own and operate STG Strength and Power. It's uh, a private gym. Um, we're actually uh, in a small town outside of Brantford, Ontario. It's called St. George. Um, I guess my my original influences in um, in rational training came from your your Arthur Joneses and your Mike Mensers, and then in the in person side of things, I've had a couple of very good mentors. I spent a lot of time working with Randy Roach, who wrote the Muscle Smoke and Mirrors, um, Volume One, Two, and Three, and also uh, Brian D. Johnson, who used to own and run the IART before he sold to uh, Mike Lepowski. Um, both of them are just fantastic really know their stuff brian um helped me a lot on the training side of things um, randy also helped me on the training side of things but also very much in, on the nutrition and eating side of things so what uh, dive a little deeper into your methods of stg strength and power because it's it's not just your con- conventional gym right i mean it's not a not a meathead setting it's not a, a crossfit kind of setting what separates you from from the rest so on the business side of things, the majority of what we do is one-on-one or occasionally two-on-one personal training. So we don't have open memberships. People can't just come and go as they please. Everything's right. done. Um, I don't want to use the term clinical setting, but definitely in, in a private setting where we try to control as many of the variables as we can. Um, on, a, I guess, a bit of a side note, we also have a competitive powerlifting team that has been very successful for us. So. That's, again, more of something we do um, after hours or on weekends. The training differs a little bit there because, obviously, they have to practice their sport a little bit more. Their sport is quite literally lifting barbells, so um, their training is a little bit different. Um, But for the most part, we focus on the building of strength. We have a lot of clients who come in, and um, their big issues, they have some sort of injury. They need some sort of rehabilitation. We use the MedEx medical machines quite a bit. Right. And then again, we have uh, the average person just comes in. They just want to put on a little bit of muscle and lose a little bit of body fat, and we help them with that too. Our clients age from 12 years old to 84 years old, and uh, everyone has a little bit of a different goal. We try to be as good as we can and have enough knowledge to support all these people under a, under a pretty broad spectrum with whatever they're trying to accomplish. Right. Nice. So let's let's talk a little bit about um going a little deeper even with with what that looks like for for the average person because i think um 
or really what brought this question up to me is I was training a client the other day and most of my, most of my appointments are, will be, you know, a couple of days spread out and, um, it, they're full body appointments, you know, and a lot of people have a different philosophy of what exactly quote unquote full body means. And, um, to me, it, you're putting direct exercise on specific muscle groups and you're working largest muscle groups to smallest muscle groups. But other people, you know, if you Google the term, uh, full body workout, you're going to get all sorts of stuff. I mean, it, it's just like, it's, the, it's just something now that people just, you know, the, Oh, that, that, that's a full body exercise or full body movement. And you look at the actual movement and, and what is taking place and it's nowhere near, you might be activating two or three muscle groups at best. Right. So yeah. talk a little, talk a little bit about how important that is and, and how you tackle that with your clients. Yeah, no problem. And the other thing I kind of came to mind when you said that, see a lot of people doing, you know, things like burpees and they say it's a full body exercise. Right. There's no question that, uh, you know, a large amount of overall muscles are being used, but to what intensity, to what degree, um, what impact force on the body, this isn't really being addressed and we wouldn't do anything that foolish here. Um, I guess, again, everyone's a little bit different. So you could have someone coming in and their back is so bad that there's a lot of exercise we can't do and we might just be focusing on that. But assuming we're dealing with a healthy, able-bodied person yep. who wants to um, you know, get in shape and, and work very hard, the majority of people would do something along the lines of what I would call like an old-school Ellington Darden, Arthur Jones uh, type workout where we are working, like you just said, the biggest muscle groups first and then progressively moving down to the smallest. So a typical workout here might look something like a squat or a leg press motion to start um, and then moving into maybe a leg extension or leg curl. we got a couple of really good hip exercises here. we got an old Nautilus hip and back, which a lot of people love and hate. Um, (laughs) moving, Moving into calves. Upper back, uh, big fan of again of the old Nautilus pullover. Oh yeah, big time. Um, even even just pull downs, chins, just basic exercises. We normally do some sort of horizontal and some sort of vertical pulling for the upper back musculature, and then we just trans transition to the chest, shoulders, arms, and then at the end of the workout, I have a bunch of different exercises that I rotate through on a week to week basis, and they're generally um, some of the smaller muscle groups, and I always tend to work things like the grip or the lower back at the very end of the workout. Now the lower back isn't necessarily a small muscle group, but I don't want to fatigue it early on because it might negatively affect some of the other exercises later on. Right. But at the very end, um, you know, grip work, rotator work. Um, we got the Medex medical low back, which is fantastic rotary torso. All of these, um, neck and everything is a very big on neck training here. These are things that will normally end the workout with after some of the much um, larger musculatures like the hips, legs, and back have been worked. Yeah, that's huge. And I'm glad you brought up the, the neck training because I feel like that's something that a lot of people overlook um, or they think it's specific to, to athletes only. Like athletes only should be doing neck training, which is not true because I mean, if you put, if you're putting yourself in, into a car and driving, you know, 20, 30, 40, up to 65 miles an hour um, and you get into a head on collision, then you know, why shouldn't you be doing neck training? That's just another way to, to reduce, to make sure you're reducing injury in the long term. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. One of the things I tell clients all the time when it comes to neck strength is if you do end up needing it, the mm-hmm. moment that you do need it, 
you will need it instantly and you'll need it in abundance. Yeah. And uh, what you just talked about with the car, um, you know, if someone got into an accident, that would be a perfect example. All things being equal, if the musculature of the neck is as strong as it can be, and uh, hopefully we can, you know, add a little bit of size to the neck, then the chances of soft tissue damage are going to be reduced. Um, yep. The amount of time it would take you to recover from the accident is hopefully going to be reduced. Again, if you get hit by a transport truck, there's not a whole lot we can do about that. But all things being equal, the bigger and stronger we can make the neck, the better. And Absolutely. yes, it, it is applicable to any sort of athlete that is in a high-impact sport. Um, being in Canada, obviously hockey is the big one, but rugby, football. And actually, I was, I was told something a couple of years ago that uh, one of the biggest sports for um, neck injuries and, and also the concussions is actually cheerleading. Oh, I can and, see that. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, uh, you know, these, uh, these athletes huh. get thrown up in the air and, and, you know, unfortunately they don't always get caught um, and they're tumbling around. So there's a lot of motion, uh, a mm. lot of stress on the neck. So again, we can't, we can't fix all injuries. We can't save everyone from what happens, but everything being equal, the stronger we can make the neck, the better. Yeah, and that's not the point to, to save everybody, but the point is that if you're going to be active, X, Y, and Z of training is necessary, and that's definitely something that's necessary. And the grip. I'm glad you brought the grip up too because that's something that um, I, uh, I kind of I go in waves with that also. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I might uh, put that in. I, well, if I, if I do actual grip training, like, you know, specific, then it's definitely going to be at the very end. But, you know, teaching, teaching proper grip form around a barbell or a dumbbell, uh, pull-ups, chin-ups, because a lot of people, when they, when they grab something, they automatically, well, in the gym at least, they automatically go with almost like a hook grip, you know, when they're using that thumb as, as it were, as it were a, um, a finger, and they don't have that full, um, index finger to, or middle finger to, to thumb mobility. And I always try to drive that home. Well, it's, it's more comfortable if I, if I grip it like an overhand grip, but then you look at like how they, how they have to put stress on their wrist and that transfers down to stress on the elbow, which can compromise the shoulder. So talk a little bit, how, how important is that full functional grip of being able to bring that thumb to the, the fingers? Well, a couple points I found on grip training. First, it's, it's kind of an interesting observation I've had some people that have had multiple years of gym training, strength training, people that I certainly wouldn't consider to be beginners in the gym. And if they've never done grip training, especially nice full range grip training, we have uh, a Nautilus Superform machine, an Ivanko Super Gripper, and um, a Hammer Strength Gripper machine here. It's, it's crazy to see how little strength a lot of these people have. So these muscles do need to be trained through a nice full range of motion to, to really develop the strength, which I find interesting. Um, as it comes to gripping the barbell, and this is a true story, um, when I was uh, just starting to get into uh, teaching powerlifting, there's still a lot of people in competition. They use what we call a suicide grip. Is basically they don't put their thumbs around the bar when they do the bench press. Right. And again, they make the, they make the same comment that oh, it, it feels better that way. You know, however they justify that. Right. And uh, I watched this one gentleman, and he was actually an SNC coach at a, a private high school in this area. Very, um, I guess you could say it was a prestigious high school. You, you know, the parents pay money for their kids to go here, and he's training some of the you know better high school athletes in the area, and he's competing competitively in the bench press, and he sets up with a suicide grip, 
and uh, he pulls that out of the rack, and he had 335 on the bar. Oh, and he dropped that weight about an inch out of lockout onto his chest. Spotters couldn't get in time because it hit him. Um, you know, just absolutely destroyed his sternum. And uh, to my knowledge, he never competed again. And, you know, that's a big thing to take a gamble on just because you think it's a little more comfortable. So yeah. I tell especially young athletes all the time, just put your thumb around the bar, do it right. Even if there's a little bit of discomfort in the wrist at first, your body will adapt. But all of these open grips, I'm not a fan of them. I'm not either. Not not even close. And you think about just, um, you know, in terms of the functional of, of what if you if I just tell somebody to try to try to open a, a door handle, just a doorknob without using your thumb that way. Just do mm-hmm. that. Do that. Think about what we're doing and how each muscle group affects your daily, uh, your daily life. And that's how we're going to try to attack it. That's how, at least, you know, that, that's my, uh, that's my opinion. And that's how I address the things, you know, well, how come you always tell me, how come you're so strict on, you know, full extension in the elbow and overhead and how, well, here's why next time you go to put something above, above your head, do it the way that you, that you want to do it in the gym. Next time you want to yep. try to open a handle or a door, do it the way you try to do it into a gym. We're going to try to make the most effective way possible inside the gym so you can be as effective as you possibly can on the outside of the gym. So that's, I don't know why, but so, tiny little things like that really get under my skin. Like I get, I got goosebumps just thinking about like somebody not using their thumb for something like that. It just drives me freaking nuts. <laughs> um, like I said, that, that gentleman that I spoke about, to my knowledge, he never competed again. Yeah. He was a, a regular out on the circuit, like circuit of power, the thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I never did get a chance to talk to him to find out what the extent of the injury is, but he did not finish that meet. And I mean, I watched the bar hit him. It hit him full force. And luckily the spotters, after it hit him, they got it off him pretty quick, but the majority of the damage I'm sure was already done. Oh, definitely. And that's a sad story. And even if uh, the people that you and I are training are not even remotely close to, to doing something like that, it doesn't matter. Just doing it correctly will save you from injuries down the road. Mm-hmm. So one thing that you didn't touch on and I'm, I'm curious about is uh, stretching. So a lot of times when I hear people talk about strength training or they're, you know, they're a novice to strength training, obviously, you know, people like you and I, other people in the industry have a similar mindset. We know how, um, how important flexibility is, but we also know that strength training does not reduce flexibility if done properly. It actually in- improves flexibility. Granted, you know, some, pe- some people might be, you know, genetically, a little different, uh, built different. There's, you know, I've had diff- different insertion points and things like that, that, that can be affected, but do you emphasize stretching towards an end of a workout or do you even focus on stretching at all in terms of classic stretching, you know, laying on your back and doing like a hamstring stretch where, how do you feel about those kind of things? We don't do much of it here. Um, again, what you touched on, I, fi- I feel that proper strength training does pretty much everything you need in terms of uh, increasing flexibility and increasing strength in those ranges of motion. You look at something like a a Nautilus pullover. I mean, if if used properly and progressively, you can increase the amount of range in the shoulders and the chest substantially on some of the, um, on some of the free weight lifts. Maybe you don't get quite as much. For instance, if you use a a barbell bench press, obviously you can only go down as far as the chest. If you were to use a, a Nautilus or a Medex or, you know, even dumbbells, you can use a little bit more, range of motion, which is one of the reasons why people use these apparatuses. Um, the only stretching that I really get into is I was taught a system of back stretches by um, a martial arts grandmaster named Daniel Verkirk, and uh, he showed me it as a way of helping people with bad lower backs alleviate some of the pain and tension 
that they have there. A lot of times they're dealing with a lower back injury. Those muscles have gone into some sort of spasm or they've, they've gone very, very tight as a method of trying to keep the body away from the injury. And that's fine. Um, but eventually we have to teach the body how to loosen those muscles off to help promote blood flow and promote, um, promote the recovery of the area. Mm-hmm. So I do go through a system of back stretches with, uh, with clients with some sort of regularity, assuming that's what the issue is they're coming in for. But as for sitting a client down before, after, and you know, stretching out their quadriceps or hamstrings or right. shoulders or whatever else, um, it's not something we typically do here. Yeah, and in in some cases, granted, people can find you know studies on either side of of the spectrum. But mm-hmm. you know, a lot of a lot of pre stretching or stretching during the exercise, a lot of that actually is taken away from power out output. You know, and I always yep. tell people like, well, the people that ask me, and I'm kind of going in a different direction, but people that ask me, well, shouldn't we stretch before we, we do this or shouldn't we get warmed up before we do this? And I always ask them like, look, the, the muscle only does one thing. It produces force. I mean, maybe this is a little extreme, but if you if you are just getting off of the couch from a seated position, do you warm up before you do that? No. Like your your body doesn't need a quote unquote warm up like a full body warm up to, to perform an exercise. It's going to produce force. It doesn't know whether it's a hundred percent force or if it's quote unquote 50% force, like, you know, depending on the type type of weight that you have, all, all it knows it's, it's going to go all out as soon as you activate it. And right. luckily like our, we, we, we know how to control our bodies like inherently. So, um, and I always tell people, look, when you're getting fatigued, you're in the safest position. It's not the it's not the very end of the workout, end of the exercise that you need to worry about. It's the very first couple. That's why you want to move slow and controlled. Let your body really figure out how much force it needs to use, and then continue on after that. Um, mm-hmm. And a- anyway, I, I kind of got off off a little bit, but the stretching factor. So a lot of people want to use that as a warm up, and I, you know. For some people, if they really, really like it and they always talk about how they want to stretch beforehand, okay, we'll go through a couple manual stretches. That's that's I'm totally okay with that. I'm not a huge proponent of it, but that's okay. But I always ask people if they're really focused on stretching, it's something they talk about a lot, is how I always ask them, how flexible do you need to be on a day-to-day basis? You know, you're you're not a you're not a professional athlete, a college athlete, or whatever. If you're if you're sitting at a desk, then what are the muscle groups that would need to to handle and do they need to be more flexible or do they need to be stronger? And if we can get them strong, I guarantee they're going to become more flexible. So I like to drive that home too. You know, how flexible do you actually need to be? That's a long way to go around it, but that was my point. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's actually a good question. I'm not even sure what the answer is for that. I, I understand th- where you're going with, yeah. uh, um, you know, it's like, well, what are you doing? Jumping out of your seat and going into the splits? I mean, it's not right. going to happen. Right, exactly. Um, and and again, I think that uh, being stronger is going to be, um, if we're looking at overall quality of life for your average person who's just you know going through and doing their daily tasks, certainly mm-hmm. uh, increasing that strength is going to make things much, much easier. Um, one of the things I like to quote often, it was um, an old Arthur Jones quote, and it was from, it was actually an interview he did in uh, a Playboy magazine in the late 70s. And he talked about exercise and uh, he talked about, you know, how exercise has to be hard for it to actually be exercise. And he said, you know, for some people, exercise is getting out of a chair and walking across a room because that's how much they can literally do. That is at their capacity of their body. Right. And for other people, it's using an 800 pound barbell. And, uh, you know, it's obviously different ends of the spectrum. But again, it has to be hard. 
Yep. And uh, if we can increase that capacity progressively over time, it's going to make things a whole lot easier. The the person who uses an 800-pound barbell, obviously walking across a room is no big deal. And I actually did a guest spot on a, a television show um, where I am uh, in Ontario, Canada, and they had me on with um, a gentleman who had lost over 100 pounds. And uh, the interviewer asked him, you know, how did you get started? And he said, you know, the first day, he basically just got up off his couch and uh, he pretty much walked to the end of the block and back. And at that time, that was literally the most he could do. And uh, since then, that gentleman, he went on to say that he's done, you know, like 5K um, jogs. He's gone into jiu-jitsu. And these were things that day one, there'd be no chance that he right. could do it. It would have, you know, probably turned him inside out. Um, but he progressively moved over time. Now, I would have done it a little differently. I would have done it with the weight training. And uh, we're fortunate enough to have uh, some of the old Nautilus and MedX machines, some really great free weight equipment. And uh, we can, um, you know, be very proficient with what we do. But it's still the same principle. He progressively worked up his capacity over time and his quality of life has increased because of it. Yeah, absolutely. Talk a little bit more about that, the the machine collection, because... Uh, if, you, if you look on your website, which I hope people do, it's pretty impressive the amount of machines that you do have. So talk a little bit about that. How did your, all, I don't want to call it an obsession if it's not an obsession, but I mean, you, you've got some. Obsession. Yeah, that's what I thought. It's you some pretty impressive pieces of equipment. So talk a little bit about how you got started with uh, collecting those and, and uh, where they came from and how much they mean. So it all started with... Um... I was reading through some of the early Mike Mentzer stuff, and I think it was, if it wasn't Heavy Duty 2, I believe it was his Heavy Duty 2 workout. And uh, for back and chest, because he did the split routines, he wasn't doing the full body routines, he had a Nautilus pullover with a pull-down, um, a double machine, yep. and then a Nautilus double chest that has the chest fly and the press from the same machine. For someone who might be listening that aren't familiar, these are one machine that has a seat that allows for multiple movements. It would have a compound movement and an isolation movement for the same muscle group. So his, his back and chest routine was a pullover immediately followed by a pull down and a chest fly immediately followed by a press. And if I'm not mistaken, he finished that off with a deadlift. Okay. So, so I'm six, four, I'm a tall guy and I'm fairly long in the limbs. So a lot of the machines that I had been using up until that point, and even a lot of the free weight lifts, they're not necessarily the greatest for me. If you were to watch me do a free weight squat, I can do it. And I've worked up to some decent, uh, decent lifts, but I don't have great form. And what I mean by that is I'm not one of these people who can just sit down into the hole and have their back stay upright. That bar is really trying to push me forward at my height. So I got on these Nautilus machines and they just fit me perfect uh, they were just fantastic and a lot of tall people really like some of the old nautilus stuff so i got the uh, the pull down uh, pullover machine and the chest fly chest press machine and i started doing my chest and back workouts at my parents basement i was living at home at the time i was in my early 20s and i really liked it so then the next thing was well if i get a couple more machines then i can do a little bit more at my place so i think i got a double shoulder and um, the plate loaded bicep tricep machine so it was like a preacher curl and uh, a tricep extension yep again the old nautilus stuff and i already had the barbell so now i'm doing shoulders and arms and back and um and chest at my parents place i still got a gym membership and of course the next thing is well i want to have enough room to do legs so what ended up happening was 
I, I decided I really just needed a leg extension, a leg curl, and a hip and back. And those were kind of going to be the, the end of my collection. And I happened to find a deal where I forget if it was 12 or 14 Nautilus machines, but it was a bunch. And uh, they were selling them really cheap. They'd come out of a YMCA in uh, Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And it cost me more to ship the machines than, <laughs> uh, than it did to actually purchase the machines. Wow. So I had a friend at the time who he had a, a big factory and he had a fitness area and I made a deal with him and he said, well, you can put the extra ones here and if you train me a couple times a week, you can just keep them here. And I said, well, that's great. And then I took the ones I wanted and uh, now I got rid of my gym membership at the commercial gym I was at. I was doing all my training in my parents' basement, which I always joke whenever I talk about it, it's very nice of them not to kick me out because I overran that that basement with exercise machines. Oh, you had to have, yeah. Yeah, they're big machines. For those who aren't familiar with the old Nautilus machines, oh they were really built around the function first. And yeah. size, footprint, <laughs> all of these things were secondary. They later addressed it with some of the later models. Yeah, but different. the early stuff, it was as big as it needed to be to function the way they wanted it to function. Right. So anyways, um, what ended up happening was the place where I was having my extra machine stored, there was a very big room right beside it that was just covered in garbage. And I do mean four or five feet wall to wall garbage. I believe I'm not mistaken. It's about 1800 square foot room wide open. And the gentleman who owned the place said to me, you know, if you can clean this out, put all your stuff in here and I'll give you a real good deal on the rent. So it took us weeks to clean out. It was on the second floor and some of this stuff was just, there was an old safe in there. And the safe must have been over a thousand pounds. I forget how we even moved it now. But it took us weeks to clean this place out. And uh, just little by little, we set up uh, a facility. That was my first commercial facility. And uh, before long, we had full circuits of uh, Nautilus machines, all the free weights you could ever want. And then uh, eventually we transitioned into the MedX machines as well. And uh, I think the facility I'm at now, this is my third commercial gym. Each one's kind of been a step up. And back to your original question about the collection, I have yeah. every selectorized MedX machine. I have two of the five medical MedX machines. Again, for those who aren't familiar, they're a couple thousand pounds a piece. They're huge. Yeah. And I have almost every first generation Nautilus machine that, that would have been made by Arthur Jones. All the all the double machines, wow. his infometric machines, the plate loaded machines. Um, and I'm just now working on tracking down the rest of his Omni machines, which they basically made uh, a few machines that you lifted the weight with a foot pedal and yep. then you lowered the weight with um, your upper body. So there's a chest press, a shoulder press, a bicep curl, and a, a tricep extension. And, you know, they in some cases, they only made 10 of them. Rare stuff, really heavy-duty stuff. They were expensive back in the day, so they didn't sell very well. Um, and tracking it down now is tough. But uh, when you say obsession is a word, it's not <laughs> something that I can readily deny. <laughs> yeah, when, especially when you start talking about those duo machines, because you think to yourself, someone who isn't familiar, oh, yeah, that'd be a great idea is to have a peck fly and a press in one. It'll save some space. Nope. <laughs> Nope. Like those things nope. are so freaking huge. But like you said, you know, that was, that was definitely secondary. If, if not, they were probably, you know, maybe number 10 on their list of what was required. So, um, but it's, it's impressive. And I hope I, I urge people to go check out the website just to check out some of the machines you have. So, um, I think, um, a prize possession that most people have would probably be the, the lumbar machine, right? The MedX lumbar, um, yep. I'm sure. Do you have just one of those, or do you have multiple? 
actually have two of them right now. Two, we have okay. Two facilities, and uh, we got one in each facility. Um, that machine is as close to a miracle tool as anything that I have found. I used to have three or four really good ways of treating people with lower back pain, and they still work, and uh, and you know they do their job. But I have abandoned most of them just because I can't beat the machine. And I know there's a lot of people on the other side of the coin, kind of like when you were saying earlier you know, with the stretching. Well, there's people who are really into it. There's people who really aren't. And they can cite any science they want to, you know, validate their point. Um, and so I can show you people who are on the side of the medics, medical low back, and people that certainly aren't. But yeah. all I can tell you from my personal experience is people who have had lower back pain for 10 years, 20 years, however long it's been, um, they get on the machine, and generally within the first session, they at least walk out of the gym pain-free, and they're happy about that. Now, that has a lot to do with the circulation that you've brought to the area. But within four to six weeks, they're walking around, and it's, it's almost um, it's almost a, uh, an interesting process for them. All of a sudden, you get a text message, you get a phone call from them, and they say, well, you know what? I just realized I went an entire week without back pain. Hmm. And you know it hasn't happened for, for 20 years. And then all of a sudden, it's like, I haven't had back pain for an entire month. And then eventually as the back gets quite strong, you know, they just don't have it at all anymore. So I can say that I'm a big fan of it. It works exceptionally well. I mean, I'm, I'm open to any idea. Anyone comes to me with an idea for how to train or how to get results. I'll take a look at it. Yeah. Um, again, assuming it's within, um, within the realm of something I consider to be safe. Right. Um, even if, you know, even if the Olympic lifts do put on muscle and I'm not saying that they don't, I always look at things within the context of them being safe. So, right. The MedX Medical Low Back, big fan, works uh, exceptionally well. And I would say from a business standpoint, it probably has brought in more business than anything else because once you fix someone's lower back, and generally it's a case of they've tried 10 different things over the last 20 years and nothing's worked. So when something does work for them, they tell everybody. And that has been a big boom for business. And you're not the only person to actually use the word miracle machine. There have been other people that have had on this podcast who own one or two of those machines and say the exact same thing. And you know, and that goes along with just because you're you're helping someone number one and that in turn is is a reason why business is so good. I mean because it actually works. You know, you're not prescribing. Of course they have to maintain strength, but you're not prescribing um, you know, m- you know, make sure you come back in and keep using this one machine like you're they're going to you're fixing an issue that they have, which is huge. So uh, but that's usually a prized possession when people start talking about that and the original pullover are usually pretty coveted possessions. So um, what other kind of projects do you have working on right now? <laughs> There's always something going on. Yeah. Uh, uh, talking about the, um, the Nautilus machines, I, I really got a passion for some of the old Nautilus machines, the real early designs that were made by Arthur himself. And uh, I actually was talking to uh, another gym owner. I think the gentleman is from Australia. I forget. I'd have to look it up. And uh, he commented to me that he felt that my facility was probably about the closest that anyone had been to being able to replicate the Colorado experiment. And again, for those who aren't familiar with it, that was an experiment done in the early 70s where Arthur Jones trained himself and Casey Viator, Casey Viator being a young bodybuilder at the time. And I believe he put on 45 pounds on uh, Viator in about a month. And I want to say that Viator dropped body fat, the actual muscular, um, muscular change was over 60 pounds. Now, a lot of that had to do with muscle memory and Viator never got up to a weight beyond his previous best. 
but regardless, he did put on a tremendous amount of muscle in a very short period of time. So I managed to get the notes from the workout. So I got the workout logs and uh, they used 13 exercise machines to complete, um, to complete the month's worth of training. And I had 10 of the 13. Oh, wow. So one, so one of them was actually um, just a leg curl, which they made thousands of. I went out and, and got one for a couple hundred bucks. You can get them just about anywhere. And then the other two were an Omni chest press and an Omni shoulder press, which are very, very rare machines. And uh, took a bunch of calling people around and you know calling in some favors and whatnot. And I'm in the process of getting delivery of both those two machines. Now, I'm not... I'm not naive enough to think that I'm going to put 60 pounds of muscle on someone in a month. I understand the factors of, of how they managed to do that back, uh, back when, you know, genetics, whether or not Viator was or wasn't on steroids and right, muscle sure. memory. But, uh, but these are really great pieces of exercise equipment. And um, I don't think that this collection has been put together at, at least since the time of the experiment. You know, maybe they had them together somewhere in, in some sort of warehouse in the 80s, but it's been at least a couple of decades since to my knowledge that whole collection has been put together so it's a bit of a side project but i'm looking forward to completing it is that going to be in the uh in the gym youtube series so the in the gym youtube series is actually a television show okay so up up here where i am in uh in southern ontario canada um we actually did two seasons season one was six episodes uh season two was 10 episodes and they actually aired that on television up here okay gotcha and uh when um when I wrote up the contract for the show, they own the rights to the show for a certain period of time. Um, so they can basically broadcast it with, um, some sort of exclusivity. But after that, it reverts back to my intellectual property. So I have repurposed it and put it on YouTube, but it's actually a television show up here. Oh, awesome. So is, are you going to have those, those pieces of equipment that you're going to acquire? Are you going to put that into, are you going to like maybe open up that series again and do some kind of, I don't know, some kind of other special project or, are you going to share it with the world is what I'm asking. Um, I actually need to get on YouTube a little bit more. Um, I do my own video editing and, uh, for anyone who has, has done it, who, who's an amateur, like I am at it, it takes a long time. So I, I, I actually, even on the powerlifting side of things, that's, I guess I've gotten probably more notoriety on the online world through powerlifting than anything else. And uh, I have videotaped every lift any one of my lifters ever made in competition. So I've got a big archive of all of it. And one day I'd like to sit down and, you know, put it all together and show all the lifts, you know, some real strong uh, men and women. Um, But finding the time to do it is is the big problem. So one day I'll get around to that and certainly, um, you know, doing a full, you know, it'd be under half an hour long, I guess, of doing one of the workouts from the Colorado experiment, putting it on so people could see some of the, those old exercise machines. That'd be something I'd like to do, but just sitting down, getting someone to videotape it, getting someone to uh, to edit everything, or I guess in my case, I'm doing the editing. It's, it's a time thing that's, uh, that's a problem. Like I say, it's good to be busy, yeah. um, but I could, I could definitely see putting that out there because I do get requests for people who want to see some of these old Nautilus machines. I got an infometric bench press that very rare. Most people have never seen one in action, so I made sure that that was on the TV series. I have a single arm hip and back, which again, most of the ones that were made were dual poly um, movement arm. So I do try to get it out there, but for me, it's just a matter of time. Yeah, man, that's, and there's great to be busy too, but you know, that, yeah, that could definitely be a later project. And I know exactly what you mean with the whole editing thing, because jumping into like, just this podcast, which is almost like a drag and drop, but 
you just got to start putting those tools in place that um, allow you to do it super efficiently, just like anything else. It's just like a workout program almost, you know, you just kind of like, now I know exactly what I need to do as soon as we get, as soon as we, you know, we get off this call, I know exactly what's going to need to happen. Of course, I'm going to go back and listen to it because I'm anal, but like <laughs> the editing part of it is so time consuming. But, um, uh, but I think that's, I think if, if for those of you who haven't seen the, the in, in the gym series, it's definitely worth watching. Um, a lot of cool stuff on it, a lot of great information, but, uh, Michael, I really appreciate you taking the time today. And I, something that I wanted to start doing, and I was unsure until just this moment if I was going to do it or not, is I want to start asking people uh, what their their if they had to do one exercise for the rest of their life, what would it be? I'm kind of putting you on the spot because this is the first time I've ever done it. But if you had to pick one exercise for yourself, yep, what would it be? Well, if we're talking about results, it'd be the deadlift. deadlift. I don't think I'd have any, any problem answering that. I know a lot of people argue between the squat and the deadlift. In yeah. my opinion, if, if if you were to come up with a system that could accurately measure the amount of muscle fibers used in an overall lift, I'd be willing to bet the house on the deadlift being greater than the squat. I think there'd be a lot more upper back um, activation. Certainly the fact that you're holding on to the weight, all the, all the gripping um, – all the gripping muscles are going to have to come into play. And just from my own feeling, I mean, squatting is hard. There's no question about it, but I dread deadlifting far more than I dread squatting. And generally that dread is because of the amount of muscle fibers that you're working for a single exercise. So we're talking just straight on results from an exercise. The deadlift would be my pick. I think I'd have to agree with you, honestly. And I know I'm going to get called out on it. Eventually someone's going to ask me, and I'm probably going to say the same thing. Just for the, the overall intensity of the central nervous, the tax that your central nervous system takes. And like you said, you know, there are the squat, there's no doubt about it. You, you know, there's people that are going to be, uh, that could probably argue a shoulder press also. Very mm-hmm. central nervous system uh, overload. But yeah, overall muscular development, that that definitely takes the cake, I think. So, but all right, Michael, we'll let you go for the day. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Perfect. Thank you for having me on. (laughs) 